0: Well, if you would, again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and we will be reading uh, the entire chapter. So starting in chapter 1, or, I'm sorry, verse 1 through uh, verse 26. Genesis 4, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Where is Abel, your brother?' He said, "'I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper?' And the Lord said, "'What have you done?' "'The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground.' When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. The so Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered uh, Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mathushael, and Mathushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namak. Lamak said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named his name and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word may be blessed each to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word and we pray now, God, for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. We pray that as uh, we go through this study, that we may understand Your Word, we may grow in it, that we would not only understand it, but rightly apply it, and that we may um, know You and have grateful hearts for the salvation that we have in Jesus. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the problem with the human race is that we're sinners. It doesn't come to, as any surprise to any of us. We fail to do that which God requires of us, and we do the things which God has forbidden us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question is not whether or not you and I sin. The question is what will be done about it. For the Christian, we have forgiveness through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. He has set you free from the bonds of sin. But the Father of Jesus is not one who looks at the grace of God with presumption and says, Well, Jesus has saved me, so I can now go live however I want. Let sin abound so that grace may abound. The Christian is one who is repentant who delights in the law of God, who seeks to walk in righteousness, not out of duty, or because we think this will somehow please God, but because of gratefulness we have to the Lord for what He has done for us. And so in this sense, there are two ways to live. Those who are seeking to walk by the Spirit, following after the Lord, and those who do not... Who are still lost in their sins and trespasses. Every human being is a sinner by nature. Having inherited that from Adam, the question is what will be done about it? And so, immediately after Adam and Eve had been expelled from the garden, we are introduced in chapter 4 to the propagation of the human race as the human race begins to spread. Adam had sinned in the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thus sin and ruin had been introduced into the created order and into the human race. And mankind, as has been said, inherits a sin nature from our first father, Adam. And so, as humanity spread, so d- did sin begin to spread. This is a principle we can note from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death death spread through sin, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so man, who had been called to be fruitful and multiply, and we read here that this is beginning to take place. But as man increased... So did sin increase. It continued to spread throughout the whole world. The spread of sin then becomes pretty evident very quickly with these first two sons of Eve, Cain and Abel. And we also were reminded again of the battle of the seeds the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents. And here it's finding its opening battle, the battle which is raged throughout human history and which will reach its climax at the cross of Jesus Christ as the seed of the woman, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, crushes the seed of the serpent. As the Son of God dies and then three days later is raised again from the dead, for all those who trust and rest in Him may have life. So we begin with the increase of man and the first two sons of Adam and of Eve. Now, the firstborn son was Cain. And his name is actually a wordplay on Hebrew, which means to get. And Eve declares after he's born, I have gotten a man with the Lord's help. In this, Eve shows her renewed reliance on the Lord. It was by the hand of God that she was enabled to have a son. The record here is consistent with the rest of Scripture, which tells us that the conception and birth of children ultimately come from the hand of God. Our children are gifts from the Lord. Now the second son, recorded, is Abel. Now nothing is said about him. In fact, his name means nothing. Or really, more precisely, Abel means vapor. His life is, and we'll see this in a moment, his life is a vapor. He is on the scene and then gone very quickly. The scriptures then record the work that each respective brother did. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. Now, it is interesting to note that as Abel tended the flocks, Cain had chosen the work that was cursed, that is, the toil of the ground. Now, these differences in works set the stage for the rivalry, which is to come, and the controversy over worship, which was the primary factor which leads to the events which follow. In fact, worship is actually what is in focus here. God is to be worshipped sincerely and in His prescribed way. God does not desire our half-measures. God does not desire our insincerity when it comes to worship. God is not interested in us going through the motions God does not accept worship other than in the way he has prescribed. Cain's pride of self and his lack of heartfelt worship ends up being the factor which leads eventually to Abel's death. So like his parents before him, Cain desired recognition which didn't actually belong to him. The pride of Cain then becomes a dominant theme, not only for himself, but even for his descendants going down to Lamech, and even to the later builders of the Tower of Babel, who in their pride sought to make a name for themselves. So here again we see a battle taking place between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, a battle which here will lead to one's death. And so, verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, the text is ambiguous as to when this is taking place. In addition, it's not clear whether or not this was the first time sacrifices were brought. In fact, it probably wasn't the first time. The text simply tells us that both brothers brought gifts to the Lord, each from their respective work. Now the key difference in the gifts, though, is not that one was a grain offering and one was an offering of meat. That wasn't really what the problem is here. The key difference between the two offerings is the heart attitude of the giver. It says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. In other words, Abel brought his first fruit. He brought the best available to him. He brought what he had, the best he had available to God. Now Cain, on the other hand, brought an offering of some fruit of the ground. It says he brought some, he brought some fruit, of the, fruit of the ground. Just to say, Cain didn't bring anything particularly special. He didn't bring anything that was well thought out. He brought some fruit. Now there's a sense here that, um, like, it's as if he had sort of grabbed a few things. Like, well, I'm supposed to bring an offering, so I'll just grab a few things, because this is what I'm supposed to do. That's kind of the idea. One came to worship the Lord. The other came to fulfill an obligation. This is the key difference between the two offerings. And and this plays out today, doesn't it? Some are like Cain. Sometimes each of us are like Cain, aren't we? We come to fulfill an obligation. I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. There are some who come to church just because, well, I'm supposed to be there. So I'm just, I'm fulfilling the obligation. I'm checking the box for the week. We'll see in a moment, though, God's uh, God's attitude towards that. The writer of Hebrews says that Abel was acting in faith. Hebrews 11.4 by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Now, both men are bringing an offering before the Lord. Both are, are bringing, the, from the work, from their labor, they're bringing what they have to offer. They were both acting as priests, as it were. They are worshiping the same God, and with a desire to please God, but only one brought an acceptable sacrifice because only one came with pleasing God as their primary motivation. Only one of them came with pleasing God as their primary motivation. The other came with a desire to satisfy their own pride. And that is the difference. And so we read at the end of verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so there is a direct connection between the worshiper and his worship. There's a direct connection between the worshiper, you as a worshiper, and what you bring to worship. God had regard for Abel, who was bringing his best before the Lord. He was worshiping in humble gratitude. Cain was stingy. He was giving something to God, but not giving of his best. Nor was he giving out of a motivation of gratitude, of desiring to please the Lord. He was giving his leftovers and expecting God to be satisfied with that. The difference between these two men is ultimately an issue of the heart. The same heart attitude which Cain exhibits was the attitude of the priests in, uh, in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, who were bringing polluted offerings, animals which were blind and sick and lame. This is why God says in Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire in my altar in vain. Somebody just lock the temple doors. Don't let anybody else do it because this is this is such terrible offerings. God's not interested in our half-hearted, me-centered worship. You and know I don't get brownie points for showing up and going through motions. The Lord is not interested in our fulfilling obligations and checking boxes. He desires our whole heart. God wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Of course, this is only possible for those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit and made new creatures in Christ. No one is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The Christian aim then is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We are to have a love which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Abel was walking in a sincere faith. Now understand, Abel's not perfect. He was considered righteous because he walked by faith. Abel was walking in sincere faith, looking forward to the one who was to come. And thus the Scriptures tell us in other places that his deeds were righteous, while Cain's were evil. And thus God did not have regard for Cain's offering, for it was not offered with a sincere faith. Cain wasn't bringing his offering in faith. And so this is the point. Do you have true saving faith? Are you resting on Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He's offered to you in the gospel? Are you walking with the Lord with gratitude and with a heart of humble submission? Now at this point, Cain could have seen God's response of his half-hearted worship as a check on his pride. He could have, he could have been convicted of his sin and like, oh yeah, I'm not worshipping the Lord, I'm worshipping myself. He could have humbly inquired of the Lord. He could have considered what he had done wrong. He could have repented of his lack of heartfelt offering. But he does not. And this reveals his true nature. The nature of his heart. We see, we read this, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, Cain's anger shows his true attitude. And this brings about him being downcast. That he was very angry literally is this. He burned with anger. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. Cain burned with anger. Cain was enraged. It wasn't like... He was mad. Like, you've had this experience where you're like mad at yourself. Like, oh man, I really messed up. That's not what Cain's anger is here. He's enraged. But who's he enraged at? Well, he's enraged at his brother. His brother was accepted, so there's jealousy there. He's also enraged at God. How dare you not accept my worship? The Apostle John, commenting in 1 John chapter 3, says that Cain was the evil one because his deeds were evil. This is why he murders his brother. Cain's despondency, that is his face falling, was an attempt to hide his burning rage. But God, who knows all things, sees through it. And so he asks Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? But God's purpose in questioning Cain was the same as his question of Adam and Eve. To encourage Cain to repent of his sin. But here, unlike with Adam and Eve, here the outcome is very different. The Lord goes on in verse 7. He makes his point Very clear. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, the Hebrew is literally, if you do well, uplifted. And if you do not do well, listen to this sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. So if Cain would act in righteousness, if Cain would do that which is good, then his downcast face would be lifted up again. He would, as the ESV translates it, be accepted by God. But if he refuses to do that, which is good, then sin is crouching. Sin is crouching at the door. And here again we see a contrast in position. He is either lifted up by God in righteousness, or sin is crouching down, waiting to ambush him. Sinfulness then leads to further sinful attacks. But doing well leads to victory, being lifted up, being blessed by the Lord. And so if Cain were to continue down the path he was on, and continue on this path of sin... He continues to open the door to sin. Then as he opens that door to sin, sin is crouching there, waiting. Like a hungry beast to pounce upon him and, and destroy him. Far from being condemned at this point, Cain is being encouraged to do what is right. Cain is being encouraged to repent. This is, in a sense, a call to repentance and faith, to believe. The very thing that we call sinners to do, repent of your sin, trust and rest in Jesus. This is what God is calling Cain to do. Turn from the sin which easily ensnares. Turn from the sin which, like a wild beast, is crouching and waiting to destroy you. Cain should have known. Cain should have known for sin's desire was for him. It wants to have him. The language being used here is an allusion to the judgment oracle which was made against the woman and stands in contrast to it. If the woman's desire was for her husband's good, sin is a pervasive power that wishes to enslave you. That's what sin does. We are reminded again of the battle of the seeds, that I've mentioned. It's the major theme throughout this section of Scripture. The seed of the woman, the seed of Satan. And so what is Cain going to do? He was either to repent, or he was to be consumed by sin. This is what is before Cain. Either way, Cain was not an ignorant, nor was he a helpless bystander. He knew exactly what he should do. There is no neutrality when it comes to sin. One must fight against sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 7, among other places, where he outlines the struggle against the power of sin. Ultimately, the sinner can only be set free through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. But the Christian must fight sin. Cain's refusal to deal with the sin which raged in his heart, though, was to have dramatic consequences, as as we're going to see here in a moment, the anger which he allows to fester eventually leads to the murder of his brother. Now, Cain's response to God's exhortation is not recorded for us in words, but it is recorded by his actions. We read that Cain spoke to Abel. Now, it is not reported here what he says, but we can kind of guess as what he probably said to his brother. In fact, there are some ancient versions which supply the answer. Cain, it seems, sought to lure his brother into the field so that he could kill him. That was Cain's response. If this is the case then it should be understood this is not simply a crime of opportunity, nor is this a crime of passion. This was premeditated murder. Cain planned to kill his brother. He purposed to kill his brother. Cain had set out to murder his brother in cold blood. So we read in verse 8, Cain rose up against his brother. Now this phrase, his brother, was repeated over and over again, highlighting a sibling rivalry which will continue to plague the later patriarchs of Israel, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and the other sons of Jacob. The virus of sin has infected the children of Adam and Eve and is spreading Throughout all the generations, and so this is demonstrated in this, in this heinous act of murder, as Cain rises up against his brother and murders him in cold blood. And so immediately after this act, we read the questions from God. God asks Cain, "Where is Abel, your brother?" It's like when Adam was was asked, "Where are you?" Now God already knows the answer. But unlike his father, who repented of his transgression when given the opportunity, Cain does not. But he compounds his sin with a lie. He says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Cain's question, of course, is intended to be a rhetorical question Am I my brother's keeper? It's rhetorical in that it would require a negative response. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, of course not. But God responds in a very different way. See, God can work around all of our little rhetorical tricks. Adam had been, had been a keeper of the garden. Cain most certainly was his brother's keeper. He was to look out for and to show some responsibility towards his fellow human being. His own brother. You and I are, in fact, responsible to look toward the welfare of our fellow image bearers. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. But more to the point, the specific crime that Cain had committed was most heinous. And so the de- definitive answer to his, his own question comes later in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 when Noah is told, among other things, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Is Cain his brother's keeper? Yes. In fact, Cain deserves death for what he's done. Man is to look out for man. You and I have mutual duties towards one another, not only as Christians, and this is definitely true, but as fellow image bearers. Cain had abandoned his responsibility of looking out for the best interests of his brother when he committed this appalling crime. And so for this, there must be consequence. And so God responds, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now this again is like the the woman and the man earlier in Genesis. This is a criminal trial. But regardless of Cain's answer, there is already condemning testimony. The blood of Abel, which had soaked the ground red. His shed blood was crying out here we can see the blood personified. The blood of Abel is crying out to the Lord. It's crying out as a witness testimony which proves Cain's guilt. Cain was therefore to give an account of his actions. His guilt is already known. The judgment has already been passed. Verse 11, And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The language of judgment is the same as that which was given to the serpent. And now you are cursed. This is is purposeful. There's a linkage here now between Cain and the serpent. The linkage between Cain and the seed That is to say that Cain has now allegiance with Satan. His allegiance was, was with that of evil. And what had taken place was from his hand. Cain is not some innocent bystander. Cain is not some victim of circumstance. Cain had caused the death of his brother. He had murdered him. Cain had done the dirty deed. And so Cain is like his spiritual father, the devil. Both are murderers. Both are liars. And both must be judged. Because Cain has polluted the ground with the shed blood of his brother, he was to be driven out from his family. No longer would he be able to enjoy the fruit of his labor, for the ground will not produce enough for him he will, he will now be a vagrant, a fugitive and a wanderer having no home or people. Now Cain's response to his punishment is self-pity. Over and over again, Cain given, given uh, opportunities to repent, does not do that. And here he just he, 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 he's, he feels sorry for himself. Verse 13 he says, "My punishment is greater than I can bear." You'll notice, Cain does not express remorse. Lord, I have sinned against you in killing my brother. No, he doesn't do that. He just says, what you're doing is too harsh, Lord. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't admit his guilt. He does not seek the Lord in repentance and faith. And he could have. Instead, all he does is complain about his punishment. Lord, you're just too harsh on me for murder. He protests. He protests that God is too harsh. I mean, after all, Adam was forgiven after he plunged all of humanity into ruin. He wasn't driven away from the ground and away from the face of God. Why is God mistreating me so much? Isn't this a typical response of unbelief, accusing God of injustice? Now maybe you, you understand too that you've experienced hints of that in your own heart, haven't you? God, why are you being so unfair to me? It's me, remember? Remember? That's when we're acting in unbelief, which we're prone to do. Well, Cain's bitter complaint comes to a climax with his final objection, where he says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That's actually pretty telling, isn't it? Because Cain presupposes that humanity will continue to expand throughout his lifetime and that he will become a victim of a blood avenger. They're going to be like me. They're going to try to kill me now. He assumes everybody's going to be as bad as he is. It's very telling. Without God's help, he will die. Nevertheless, despite his deserved banishment, the Lord does not leave Cain totally unprotected. In fact, we see, even to, in this case, even to the unbeliever, God shows a measure of grace. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold and the lord put on a mark uh, put a mark on cain lest any who found him should attack him so god answers cain's complaint in a very gracious way he, he promises to protect his life even placing a mark on him so god's provision then is twofold he will warn any who might seek to murder cain vengeance is, is sevenfold and he provides this this mark But consider this as well. Cain's fear tells us more about his heart than that of the world. As as I've mentioned already, Cain assumes that everyone is going to be vengeful like he is. That everyone is going to be murderous. The world's population had not yet even grown, yet he assumes that everyone will be a murderer like him. And in a sense, Cain is partially right, isn't he? Most of the rest of the chapter deals with Cain's family and his children as they build a city. And we see Cain's family wasn't, wasn't so great. <laughs> the genealogy of Cain reaches a climax with Lamech, who brags that he has murdered a man just as Cain had. And if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, well, his would be 77-fold. You see the pride of the family of Cain. So even as some of Cain's descendants were inventive, they did great things. You see a list of things that they did. Murder and pride seem to be the mark of Cain's family. A mark, by the way, which continues into our own day. Lest we forget, Cain is part of our family, too. The righteous seed of the woman at this point in redemptive history seemed to be on the ropes. Abel, who was righteous, was dead. And Cain has proved to be wicked. Nevertheless, chapter 4 ends on a high note. The birth of Seth, who God had appointed as another offspring. And as the text points out, Seth had children. And it was at that time that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Which is to say that Seth's line was a godly line. The people who sought after the Lord. And these lines will intermingle. And there would also continue to be enmity between the two seeds. Well, there's a battle which continues to rage. Not only in the world, but in your own heart. And in my heart. If you remember our study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, or this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, But it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all, stand firm. See, the consequences of not dealing with sin can be great. For Cain, it meant banishment from the covenant community and the curse of wandering the earth. And this was because of his uncontrolled anger which led to the murder of his brother. But we know we can't deal with our own sin, can we? At least you can't on your own. You and I must turn by faith to the Savior, Jesus Christ. At the same time, although we are justified by grace through faith, in other words, it is Christ who saves you and who makes you just before God. Our sanctification, that is, our daily dying to sin and living to righteousness is something that you at least cooperate with the Holy Spirit in. You and I must daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. You and I must daily repent of our sin and turn to God. You and I must daily walk by the Spirit, not by the works of the flesh. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not our own doing. It is a gift of God. It is God who keeps you. It is God who secures you. So then, walk in a manner worthy of your calling by which you've been called. That's the, that's the message of the New Testament, isn't it? You've been saved by grace. Therefore, walk in that. Live the, the way that you've been called to. The Christian is not one who presumes, like, let let, let grace abound, let sin abound so that grace may abound. I'm saved, I can go do whatever I want. In a sense, that didn't work out very well for Cain, did it? The the, the consequence for the, the Christian may not be destruction, but when we fail to put sin to death... That sin may be seeking to enslave you. We may be missing out on blessing. We may be missing out on the joy in the Lord. We may miss out on continued growth in Christ. In addition to this, however, we understand the Christian is a new creature. You have been transformed. If you're actually in Christ, you've been transformed by Him. If you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but at the same time refusing to repent of your sin, you're refusing to turn from your sin, then you must ask yourself, am I truly in the faith? Am I actually a Christian if I refuse to repent of my sin? Or do I have a merely a dead faith, as James speaks of? In fact, we learn in James that true saving faith is a faith which is vindicated by fruit. So as Christians, I urge you to turn from your sin. To take up your cross daily. To die to yourself daily. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in this sense, we are like Cain and his descendants. We are sinners. And to all I ask, the non-believer in particular, will you repent of your sin and trust and rest in the Savior Jesus Christ alone? That is to say, will you be allied with the seed of the woman or will you allow your sin to rule over you as Cain did in alliance to the seed of the serpent? We urge you to know Jesus and to trust in Him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the reminder to walk by the Spirit. Father, we we confess before You that we are sinners. That we have fallen short of Your glory. Father, help us not to be like Cain. Help us to not be like those who refuse to repent. Help us be like those who are convicted of our sin and turn to the Lord, seeking forgiveness and restoration in Christ. Help us to be people who walk by the Spirit. We thank you, O God. We praise you for what you have saved us from. You've saved us from destruction. Help us to walk in that newness of life, and give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.